Hi, it's Tony. On today's show, we'll talk to Ryan McGee about NASCAR and the Daytona 500. We'll also chat with Mark Feinstein, who's in Florida for spring training, about the learner's change of heart to keep the Nats. But first, we got to keep the sales weasels happy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. We just don't have characters like that anymore. It's so corporate now. That's not a bad thing because I would be corporate now, too, because it, it avoids a lot of problems. I mean, I can't imagine how much fun it was talking to him after a game or going into a press conference because you knew you were going to get something. And now, you know, you got to have a crowbar to get quote out of somebody. Oh, no, it was absolutely fabulous until he stuck his finger in your chest and you say, why don't we go outside and fight? And you go, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. So the other day, people enjoyed when we took the curtain back about the PTI show. And we yes. talked about how the show was filmed and what you can and can't say and how things change. I got another one today, and this involves the happies one more time. This is the happy anniversary that Daniel Light and I worked on yesterday and that I wrote to be delivered today. This, I believe, I'm using the past tense, was going to be the happy anniversary. I'll read it to you. Happy anniversary, Danny Hurley. On this day two years ago, the fiery UConn coach quickly picked up two technicals in a home game against Villanova and was ejected. Before leaving, Hurley turned to the crowd to encourage more noise. <laughs> this is a happy anniversary because Hurley's squad got a late basket to upset the number eight Wildcats. Last year, Hurley's team won the national championship as a four seed. This year, they're the number one ranked team in the country, 24-2 and two overall, 14-1 and one in the Big East. Well, that's gone. That's gone. They went to Omaha last night to play Creighton, and they got beat by 19 points. We're not using this. That's going to lead the show. I mean, I'm sitting here at 8 o'clock in the morning like, telling you that I believe after I get this phone call at 11 o'clock, well, we're going to lead the show with UConn losing. Yeah. I don't know how we can do anything else. So that happy Annie... That's gone. And I'm not writing another one. The producers can write the next one. I gave them the best effort I had. Right. Yeah. They'll read whatever you put on the screen. You know, so, uh, no, somebody else is going to write the Annie. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's that's just the way it goes. I mean, I probably, I did not realize when I was writing it that UConn was playing. You know, because I would have taken into consideration. Creighton is a ranked team. Creighton, uh, Doug McDermott is the coach there, right? I believe so. Yeah, I'll check that. Is it Doug McDermott or was that the kid, McDermott? What was the kid's name who was such a great shooter? Maybe the kid was Doug McDermott. Maybe this is somebody else. Anyway, he's a really big guy. He played basketball in college. He's like 6'8 or 6'9. And, you know, very easy to talk to. Craig McDermott. Okay. Right. Okay. So, you know, I probably should have said, are you sure you want to do this, Annie? Because, you know, there's a 50-50 shot that they're going to lose this game on the road in conference to a ranked team. Especially this and it was year. a court-storming situation afterwards when oh, they won. Yeah. And they won by like 19. Yeah. 19. So I don't, yeah, I this don't time know. of year when you get to a Tuesday night, you sort of have to look at the TV guide to see what's, uh, what games are scheduled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was... I, I put in some effort in this, and it's done. <laughs> it's Be- done. Beautifully written. I can't imagine we're going to use this one. Cutting room floor. You know, yeah. I can't imagine it, yeah. So, so what, at Michael? what point did you start calling them Annie's? I love this term. Oh, well, there's happy birthday, happy anniversary. And, it's, you know, that I, I, did, I guess Kelleher first said Annie first. And then, yeah, it's the happy Annie and then happy trails. 
And we don't do trails till day of. Yeah. But we do birthday and Annie the day before. The happies. Yeah. Um, I got one other thing to say. I was out at the beach over the weekend. Um, and I went, I went to walk. I think I've told people that I try to walk when I can, try to go to a gym and walk. And so I go to the gym and I walk two miles. And when I'm done, this is on I go a treadmill. Over, it's on a treadmill, yeah. yeah what I'm level? Not, level low. Level one, level straight ahead. We're not going upwards. Incline negative one. I'm so old that just making two miles is a great achievement for me. I'm not going to try and make it harder on my heart by going straight up in the air as if I'm climbing Everest. I'm not doing that. Are you attaching the emergency stop clip? No, I'm not doing that. I think I can make it through. I'm going very slowly. It's a, it's, I'm doing two miles in 40 minutes. That's, you know, three miles an hour. It's very slow pace. So anyway, when I'm done, I go over to the men's locker room, you know, because they have a coffee machine there and they have showers there. And I, I, I walk over there and they have two things of candy in the men's locker room. They have a peanut M&M. I don't really like peanut M&M's. I'm a big fan of M&M's, but so not... The, the regular M&M's, right? Regular M&M's, or, you know, if they have exotic malted milk M&M's or peanut malted butter M&M's. Milk. Do they? It's like Whoppers? Like Whoppers, yeah. I don't know if they have those. I don't think they... But they do have peanut butter peanut sometimes. Butter, yeah, the peanut butter M&M's, yeah. Okay, so, so I don't go... I don't put my hand into the one with the peanut M&M's because I don't like peanut M&M's. But they have the red Swedish fish. Uh-oh. Oh, no. And I put my hand into the red Swedish fish. And I've been doing this here and there for a while. I start eating the Swedish fish on the left side of my mouth, and suddenly my tooth falls out. <laughs> suddenly half my tooth falls out. Half my tooth. I'm sorry, I what? open my mouth. I spit out the Swedish fish, and there's half my tooth on the left-hand side of my mouth. The good half. Half my tooth, and, and so I don't know if this is a crown. I don't know how many teeth I have anymore that are real teeth. I don't know if this is a crown or a real tooth. And, and I don't, I, I sort of think maybe I'd had a root canal because I don't have pain. Right. There's no particular pain, and there would be pain. I, I rub the area with my tongue, and I can feel that half my tooth is gone. <laughs> it's on bad. the lower left, mm. half my tooth is gone. Now, I throw it all out. I probably should have saved the tooth. But yeah. I was panicked. It's like when, remember, Michael, when I, when I flushed the mouse? Yep. You know, I, I just didn't really think clearly on this. <laughs> so I threw the Swedish fish out, which I will never eat again. Swedish fish. Those days are gone. Yeah, just wait till you're tempted next time you go back to the beach. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to eat Swedish fish. May I recommend you try the peanut M&Ms. They're great. Yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm afraid of everything in there now. So now my tooth falls out. So I go outside. Now, I know for a fact that there's a dentist there who I've played with in golf named Ryan Barnhart, a very nice guy, very nice guy. And I get his phone number, and I call him up. This, now, this is a Saturday. I should, under, I should underscore this. This is a Saturday. I call up Ryan. I get his phone number. I say, I explain what happened. And he said, you know, my daughter is in a swim meet now. She's in a swim meet. So would it be okay if I called you back after 12 noon and we could work on this? I said, Ryan, I'm, I'm standing here begging. You can call me back in three days. It's, <laughs> it's okay. Thank you so very much. Sure. And at about 1230, his daughter did well in the meet. At about 1230, he called up and he took me into the office. No kidding. And he put a temporary on it. He put a temporary on it. Do you know how nice this is? Now, and, and Michael and I have talked about this. People that go in, now, dentistry... Dentistry, medicine, nursing, these are the healing arts, teaching. Yeah. This is why people sign up for this, because they actually want to help. It's in their genetic makeup that they want to help. But it is so kind of him to do that, and then I will, you know, I'll get a permanent situation with this. But, right, that's so, because it's a weekend. Yeah. This is a weekend, and he said, meet me at the office and, and I'll do it this afternoon. That was just so nice. Yeah, this is also the power of community. You'd find this yes, if you had a yes. place of worship, if you had a social club. Yes. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a barrier to entry to a private country club, but uh, you have somebody who wants to help community members, and, and that fits you. Yeah, it was really nice. And when you need 
Surprised she just dental. wasn't waiting outside the grill room, uh, pointing <laughs> towards the Swedish fish. <laughs> right. Injury call. That. Do you think he would have put the tooth back? Oh, he told me it was a live tooth. Do you think he would have put that tooth back? I don't. I, I can't. What are you going to do? Glue it back? Maybe. I, I don't know. But I, I think once it breaks off, it's, you know. It's history. That's it. I'm just yeah, surprised I mean, you didn't put it underneath your pillow for the tooth fairy. I mean, that was a lost opportunity for some cash. If I put it underneath my pillow, the dog would have eaten it. <laughs> she would have stuck her snout in there, and the dog would have eaten it. By the way, good news for people that don't want the Wizards and the Capitals to move. The AFL-CIO in Virginia said, no, uh-uh. They're oh, against the arena deal. Really? We don't need any more low-paying jobs. Uh-uh. We're against it. Wouldn't it be great if that thing went down the drain? Would be fantastic. Again, my position is padlock the arena today, <laughs> or last week, whatever it started last month, and don't let them play there. You want to go to Virginia? Go to George Mason. Go ahead. Play. Knock yourself out. You know, well, you can't play here. I think Louise Lucas was on Twitter, like, just skewering it all. She doesn't again. want it. She does yeah, not want it. She's also a politician, and she'll make right. a deal. And exactly. within the politics, she'll make that makes deal. sense, because you're trying to make a deal. But you think yeah. you would try and get the support of the unions who would be in charge of, I don't know, the building and running of these structures. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The AFL-CIO is not some minor league union. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. No. Yeah. Anyway, all right, um, when we come back, we're going to go crazy. We're going to do NASCAR. Ryan McGee is going to join us. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a young girl named Annabelle Marr, M-A-H-E-R. This is her song called Timbuktu. I'm going to read from a note from Josh Iverson in Fargo, North Dakota. While I may not be surrounded by the same abundance of musical talent as Michael Granberry, as an elementary teacher, I do find myself surrounded by a plethora of talented students who can do such things as various interpretations of the gritty, the latest TikTok dancer make Taylor Swift friendship bracelets with the best of them. Listen to this girl for a second, huh? However, amidst this vibrant mix, I'm proud to share the story of one exceptional former student, Annabelle Marr. 17 years old, country singer-songwriter hailing from Fargo, North Dakota. She's been on PBS, The Today Show, and even a, president, even a performance for the President of the United States. Thrilled to share two of her songs recorded in Nashville. Think she can sing? 17. 17. Think she can sing? <laughs> That's not bad. P.S. from Josh Iverson. I couldn't resist the opportunity to ask, could I possibly claim the title of official fourth grade teacher of the Tony Kornheiser Show? Please extend my offer to Michael with any new math challenges he may face in the future with Bootsy, <laughs> the hammer of the captain. Of course you can do that. For sending us this music, you can have whatever you want. This is great music. And it plays in Ryan McGee. And Ryan McGee, you've probably seen on ESPN, college football, maybe NASCAR, Maybe I bring regards to begin with from Kelleher. I told him I was talking to you, and he said that you and he were PAs together a long time ago at ESPN. Is that so? And so was Shannon. Is that true? We were, and, and I, I have—I don't know if it's accurate or not—but this is what I've claimed for thirty years: is that I helped negotiate uh, the the, uh, the the relationship between uh, between those two because. <laughs> Worked one out. Would, you know, one, <laughs> one, one would say, "Hey, man, I think I have a crush on Shannon." I'm like, "Well." I think she might have a crush on you. So I feel like I feel like I might have been the uh, the go between on that. At least at least that's, that's the credit that I'm claiming. Yeah, uh, thirty years later and three kids. Yeah, I think you did a good job. Um, yeah. Look, uh, I, I, it's not my deal. NASCAR is not my deal. I, I'm the Long Island boy. It's not my deal. I I'm, I got to ask you because I know it is your deal. Is it, is it because of where and how people grew up? Is it regionalized? 
to that extent? Is that the original pull of NASCAR? What pulled you in? Yeah, I mean, I'm a North Carolinian. I, mean, I was born in Rockingham. You know, we've had a racetrack there forever that hopefully is going to get you know, rebooted in the next couple of years. My, my dad, who is a college baseball player and a college administrator and a college football referee his life, but when I was a kid, Dad was the gas can man for a NASCAR driver out of Wisconsin named Dave Marcus because they were in the Army together in the 60s. And Dave Marcus was like, when I come south, I'm going to need crew guys. And my dad is the smartest guy I know, but he doesn't know a carburetor from his big toe. But he was yeah. on pit crew, you know, when I was a kid. And so, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, Richard Petty was everywhere because I grew up in North Carolina. And, and it's like when I lived in Connecticut, I mean, back when I first met, you know, Shannon and Kelleher, was, um, you know, it was like that with hockey. You know, hockey was not in the South yet. And so I went to Hartford Whalers games to learn about it, and people couldn't believe that I didn't know anything about it. But, 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 but if they had moved to North Carolina, and so many, you know, people from the Northeast have, you know, we've educated you on that. And, and it's, it was like that when I was a kid. It's a national sport now. But when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was still, and we had more racetracks in North and South Carolina than they had, you know, west of the Mississippi, you know, back then. And, and yeah. now it's, it's a little more evenly distributed. So ESPN, and it became very trendy, and ESPN bought it for a while and then lost it for a while. And I said this earlier on the show yesterday that they gave us, you know, we would do NASCAR here and there. They had great PR work, and they would give us guests. And they would give us Jimmy Johnson, and they would give us Dale Earnhardt Jr., and they would give us Brad Keselowski. And I remember thinking, these guys are great. I don't understand yeah. what it is they do, but they can sell <laughs> their sport, and they were – you know, very, very nice to deal with. And, and then you watch what they do. They yep. are driving at 180 miles an hour, and they are one inch away from the person in front of them and the person behind them. You grew up in an area where this culture is profoundly important. What type of person can do that? Yeah, and I, I call it, I call it you become helmetized. Right. Once those guys put those helmets on, like I mean yesterday, so William Byron, who won the Daytona 500, or I say yesterday on Monday night, but yeah. William Byron, who won the Daytona 500, I've known William Byron since he was a teenager. And he grew up literally, I mean, a mile away from where I have lived in, in the south of Charlotte, North Carolina, for the last 25 years. He's the most mild mannered, polite, private school oh, that came, educated. That came across in the interview. Yeah. That came across. Exactly. Yes. yes. But it didn't come across when the window net was up, right? It didn't come across when, when he had to make the move to win the Great American Race. And it didn't come across last year when he won six races and almost won the championship. And so there's something that happens to these guys. And I've said it as long as I have been going to the racetrack and I've been getting paid to go to the racetrack. You know, every, so I started at ESPN in the mid-90s, mid right, when Jeff Gordon started winning races. And suddenly NASCAR became cool. And literally, you talk about interviewing race car drivers. My big break at ESPN was uh, the interview with Bill Elliott from Dawsonville, Georgia. His son, Chase Ray. Dawsonville awesome Bill Bill from Dawsonville, but, baby. But, Cover but, Sports but Illustrated. I, 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 I'll never forget a bunch of guys uh, at ESPN from the North, who grew up in the Northeastern Corridor, and they look at me and they go, do you have any idea what the hell this guy's saying right now? Because some <laughs> interview is being fed in from the racetrack. I'm like, yeah. So I literally acted like a United Nations interpreter. <laughs> For Bill Elliott, and so that was kind of my break. I'm like, yeah, I understand exactly what he said. He said like all the guys I went to high school with. So, so yeah, it, it's it, there's there's a reason they sell T-shirts with these guys' faces on them, and they don't sell T-shirts with the rest of our faces on them because they're just but built different than we are. What skill? Oh, okay. What skill do they have that you and I don't have that they can be calm? In, in this maelstrom of 100, I can't stress this enough, they're going 180 miles, they're not going 40. Yeah. They're going 180 miles an hour, one inch from the guy behind them, one inch from the guy in front of them. How do you do that? Well, and, and they're also, it's not just that, they're also built like engineers. You know, you hear these guys now. I was talking to William Byron last night you know, after we did our, our actual official interview, and when he starts talking about, the way that the air pressure changes in the car and the way that the window net to his left will start to shake and the way that he can look, you know, a half a mile ahead and see what the roofs of the cars are doing ahead of him and know, all right, there's a crash coming or all right, the outside lane is going to be faster than the inside lane. They're just so smart. It, 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 I tell you, it's a lot like football because I say this all the time, you know, back in the day when I, when I was in college in the you know, late eighties, early nineties, you know, you could just be bigger and stronger than the other guy and just knock him down and go to the hall of fame. 
but you can't play caveman football anymore. The game's way too complicated. You have to be really intelligent to play football at the highest level in college and certainly in the NFL. And race car drivers are like that now. It's, it's not just going to the dirt track and slinging it around you know, with a bunch of plumbers on Friday night like these guys grew up. Now you have to really understand engineering. And you have to understand, but you also just have to not care if you die. That, that's the part that the, the strand of their DNA is, is different than the rest of it is. It's like Chuck Yeager. Every time yeah. they go to work, yeah. they know I might not come back, and they don't care because they want to win the race. And, and that's the difference between them and us. Is, it, is there a premium on hand-eye? Are these guys baseball players? Are they golfers? Does hand-eye mean anything to it, or is it just nerves? It's, it's, it's nerves, it's hand-eye, and it's also it's the ability. Like when Magic Johnson and these guys talk about the ability to slow things down with their eyes, that's what these guys do, these race car drivers do. And what's amazing is, like, you know, if you take a Peloton class and they put you, your heart rate is in zone three and four and five, they stay in zone five all the time. And their yeah. concentration level is turned up to 11, and it stays that way for four hours. And, and the I, amount of water weight that they lose, you know, over the course of a race, it's um, – I laugh now when we get the whole race car drivers aren't athletes thing because – you know, the days of the fat guy and fat pit crew and everybody smoking yeah. cigarettes, and they don't do that anymore. That's just not how these guys are built because you just cannot do that and operate at this level. They're astronauts. They're astronauts on the ground. They're, just, they're fighter pilots. They're just, you know, they're just cool. They're race car drivers. I've got to say this, and this is what brought me into this discussion this morning. I watch the Daytona 500. I try to watch the end of it every year because I understand its import. It's not for me. Okay. But I want to know who's going to win. I want to see it. And I watched the last, I don't know, 40 laps. Yeah. There were two different large wrecks in the last 40 laps. The technology, the cameras. Yeah. I'm going to give Fox all the credit in the world. Maybe everybody does this and I don't know it. But the cameras on the outside of the cars and the inside of the cars, the ability to look at a driver while the wheel is spinning wildly in the car yeah. and he takes his hands off so he doesn't break his thumbs or his wrists. Every, every aspect of those crashes were visualized on my television set, and I went, wow, wow. Yeah. Do you feel the same way about that? No, hundred percent, and and you know, and we joke about me starting the ESPN. I also I was on the producer track for years, and so yeah, I'm a TV production junkie, and so I love talking to my friends. I worked at Fox for a couple of years back in the day, and when they, when they first got into NASCAR in the early 2000s, and you know, you know, Fox is kind of known for just sticking cameras everywhere, right? But I, I talked to my friends in the television compound over the weekend. They had just shy of 100 cameras covering that race on Monday night. And, and, and every single race car, all 40 cars had at least one camera in them. A lot of them had two or three. You saw drivers with visor cams and the gyro cam and all that stuff. Yes, and then the, yes. the, contra the contrast is, so we made a really big deal out of 1984 last night because William Byron won and he's driving for Hendrick Motorsports. And, and the, the first race that Hendrick Motorsports ran was the 1984 Daytona 500. One car in that race had an onboard camera, and it was Cale Yarborough, and it was a big deal because he won the race. And the thing weighed about 150 pounds, and all the other drivers were mad because they thought there was like a weight advantage and all that stuff. But it was like a big robot sitting in the car. And now it's this, this minuscule microscopic technology. But so, so to compare, when Fox did the Super Bowl last year, they had the Super Bowl in 2023, they used 94 cameras. And for the Daytona 500 on Monday night, they were right at 94 cameras, like just under 100 cameras. And then, but the difference is when Fox goes and does your regular, you know, four o'clock game on a Sunday afternoon in the NFL, they use about 25 cameras. When Fox goes to the Atlanta Motor Speedway for the second race of the year for NASCAR this weekend, they're going to use about 80 cameras. I mean, they, they still take all that stuff with them. And the TV compound is just, it's massive. It, if you ever, I know you've been to Super Bowls, and I've been to college football you know, national championships, and you see the television compound, and it's like a city. That's yeah. what the NASCAR compound is like every single weekend. And well, so it was, it was it, tremendous. It, it yep. I mean, uh, you watch it. It's so when they have the crashes, the large crashes, and they give it to you from every single angle, from inside yeah. and from outside, you just you think to yourself, this is, this is an amazing amount of 
of visualization doesn't make me understand the sport more, but it draws me in. I wondered, was there ever a time when drivers resisted this, when they thought, I don't want, I don't want this. I don't want them to see me in this way. Yeah. And in fact, when, so when I was working, when NASCAR was televising ESPN, when I first started there in the nineties, the and then again in the two thousands, Drivers didn't like Dale Earnhardt did not like having an onboard camera. He didn't want a mm. camera pointed at him inside the car. Yeah. He didn't want anybody to, to see where his hands were. He didn't want to see. You know, maybe you gave up a little strategy. It's like having a camera pointed at Patriots practice on a Wednesday. You just you don't want to give up any secrets. You probably won't, but there's a chance. Then what happened was was that back in the day, you know, you had 43 cars on the track, and maybe 10 of them would have onboard cameras, but the sponsors paid for it because the sponsors would put stickers all over those cameras. Right. Right. And so, you know, if it's Stroh's beer and they go to the Stroh's beer onboard camera, well, now the driver's got to do it. And now every every car has one. And and it's not just for the broadcast. It's also for safety reasons. So if there's a big crash, like you saw Ryan Blaney when his steering wheel was kind of going crazy in the crash yeah. and he hurt his yeah. wrist because he yes. didn't get his hands off the wheel fast enough. Well, what NASCAR will do is they'll take all that footage back and they'll use it at their research development center and they'll watch how much his head traveled like, and how much his helmet traveled and then how much his body traveled, and, and whenever he hits something, even in just microscopic movements, and they use that uh, to make safety advancements. You know, they've done that really, gosh, ever since Dale Earnhardt died uh, uh, 23 years ago. I will, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, and I'll go back to an original thing that I said, that I, I know this is true because it happened to me that I was at a track in Richmond, and you can... The race is going to start. It's going to start in one minute, and you can be talking to the drivers like I was with yeah. Jimmy Johnson. And I yeah. said, don't you have to get in the car? And he says, no, it's a minute. Don't worry. They, they yeah. are incredibly accommodating, and then something happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're yeah. talking about. Something yeah. happens, and they become a different person. Did did you ever know anybody, for example, that wanted to be a race car driver and you knew they don't have this, ain't going to work, they don't have this? Yeah, you can see it. You know, it, it's um, you know, the great Humpy Wheeler, uh, who was one of the great promoters in the history of NASCAR, ran the Charlotte Motor Speedway forever. What he used to say about Del Earnhardt was, was that Del Earnhardt would go where the angels fear to tread. And, you know, you either have the ability to do that or you don't. And the drivers know it immediately. Like the drivers will know it. Kevin Harvick, who's now retired and end of it, that was his first, the Daytona 500 was his first race in the booth as an analyst for Fox. And Harvick used to tell me all the time that when rookies would come in, he would know immediately by following them on the track in practice. This guy, this guy might have been good where he came from, but he's scared. And again, it's like baseball. You know, how many baseball players do we yeah. see yeah. that get to a point and they just can't hit the fastball and it gets in their head and they're done? And, and with a race car driver, um, you know, again, it's like fighter pilots. You have a bad crash, you have an incident, and it scares you to death, and you're done. You know, and it's, uh, you just, it's, it's, it is, I go back all the time. You know, the Thunderbirds blasted our ears off at the Daytona 500 on Monday afternoon, and I go back to those guys all the time because there's a reason that fighter pilots and race car drivers are really good friends because their brains work the same. Which is not the way that it's not the way my brain works, Tony. I don't know how yours does, but I, I feel like uh, I feel like you and I'd be really good to watch race cars, but nobody wants me to yeah. drive one. Yeah, my brain is so old I can't compute anymore. It's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to have hey, you on, Ryan. Thank you so I much. Appreciate Thank it. you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. All right, we'll be back with Mark Feinstein. We're going to talk about baseball. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, this is Annabelle Marr. This is called Prove Me Wrong. She's 17. <laughs> All right, come on. I mean, yeah. She's a 17-year-old girl. Already amazing. I mean, she's performed for the president. She's been on the Today Show. She's been on PBS. When I was 17, I, I couldn't find the bathroom. <laughs> it's, what are we talking about here? Michael, if people like Annabelle Marr want to send in their original music, how do they do so? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at TonyCornizerShow.com. And we have a new code of Johnny O, uh, TKT, that is T-E-E on the T now, driving uh, Mr. Tony in the course performance T, pocketless as always. I've got them. They're beautiful. Oh, wonderful. I can't even Soft. get it 160 anymore. <laughs> I'm just so old. I make great contact. It doesn't go anywhere. Mark Feinsand joins us now. There's a million things to talk about, really. I mean, from a local point of view, from my personal point of view, I would like to start with the Nats, who are apparently off the market, though you never really know. Right, Mark? If someone comes in for $2.3 billion, and it's more than they thought, they could sell the team tonight, right? Yeah, they certainly could. Did you say she's 17? 17. 17, my kids yeah. Are 15. My kids are 15 and 18. i got to find out what the hell they're doing. Yeah, they're not doing that. They're not, they're not sitting there and that. composing That's music, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, look. I mean, uh, you know, a year ago, we or the Orioles are not on the market anymore, and then a year later, they're being sold. So, uh, you know, things are off off the market until you get the right offer, and then you have to reconsider. Uh, yeah. My hunch is that the Nationals weren't getting the types of offers that they had expected. Uh, we saw this happen with the Angels last year when Artie Moreno put them up for sale and was exploring potential sales. And then uh, when the offers weren't coming in the way that he had hoped, all of a sudden they were no longer for sale. So, yeah, if somebody comes in and says, uh, well, Steve Cohn paid $2.4 billion for the Mets, we'll give you $2.4 billion for the Nationals, uh, my hunch is that there would be some reconsidering uh, at that point. But for right now, anyway, it looks like the, uh, the learners are planning on holding on to the team. If you're going to hold on to the team without the intention of selling, I don't think you can hold on to the team like in the last two years where your payroll went from the you know top seven or eight to probably very close to last, you know, because most of your money is tied up in Steven Strasburg. It's dead money at this point, and they're not going after free agents, and they're not making long-term deals. You're going to have to put money in. I mean, they've been good owners in the past. Do you think they recognize that? I do. I, you know, I think when, when, a, when a team decide, when owners decide to put a team up for sale – uh, very rarely do they then go out and get aggressive on the free agent market or the trade market and yeah. uh, try to go all in if they know that this is something they're trying to get rid of. So the fact that they're now going to hold on to the team and, and the fact that this is a team that has had success and they won a World Series you know, five years ago, even though it probably feels a lot longer than that, um, yeah, I would expect that given the young core of prospects they have that they're expecting to be good, and obviously they won't all be good because they never are, uh, but if you, you know, let, let's say of their top six guys that are getting the most press, let's say three or four of them end up being really good major league players. That's yeah. a great core to start with, and you have to supplement that. We saw that with the Astros. We saw that with the Cubs. Um, you know, those two teams after their tankathons had these great young core of players, um, but it took the Cubs going out and signing John Lester to try to put it together with the pitching staff. It, it took the Astros going and trading for Justin Verlander. Um, you know, to make it all come together. So. You know, I think you'll if the if the young core starts to develop and there is the promise of a team that is uh, building towards something. At that point, you'd have to think that that the learners will go out and um, and supplement them with some big free agent signings or or acquisitions. You know, via the trade market. Yeah, they've done it before. They did it with you know when they went to the Phillies, right? And they got Jason Worth. I mean, that was a big signing. When they signed Max Scherzer, that was a big... These are very, very large signings, both of which worked out tremendously well. I'll get off this topic, and it's possible you can't really answer this question because you're not in the Washington, D.C. area. But in the Washington, D.C. Era, area, Ted Leonsis has committed an act of villainy by attempting and announcing that he will move the Capitals and the Wizards to Virginia. It's my opinion that's an act of villainy. Um, do you think it's possible that the learners or someone in baseball went to the learners and said, oh, we understand he's bidding for your team, 
but he could move your team to Virginia. You may want to not deal with him. Is that am I wildly off base here? Uh, I don't think you're off base. It's possible. I, I think it has more to do with the offers that were there. I know it's been reported that uh, that you know Leontos had offered I think two billion for the team, and, yeah. and the Nationals were looking more for that that two point four that the Mets got. Um, and you know, look, two billion is nothing to sneeze at, but two point four is still a lot more money than that. So um, you know, had had the offer come in at 2.4, I'm not sure that, that MLB or anybody else could have talked them out of taking that kind of an offer. Um, but yeah, cert- certainly it's possible. And, uh, you know, I-, I wouldn't discount, I know I usually deflect any questions you have for me about the TV situation because I'm just not as well educated on it as right. uh, people down in the area. But it's also possible that, you know, the developments in Baltimore um, maybe are giving uh, the Nationals some hope that their TV situation will be uh settled at some point here soon and, and you know maybe that's a, a big okay. factor for them as well maybe that that makes sense all right let me get to mike trout we did this on pti yesterday mike trout has said publicly i'm not going to ask for a trade now i might sometime in the future things may change but i'm not going to ask for a trade now that would be the easy way out i think they should trade him today i think it works for everybody if they trade him today what are your thoughts on this well my thoughts on it are I don't know that it's as easy to trade Mike Trout right now as it may have been three years ago. Uh, he's had a lot of injury issues. He's mm-hmm. missed a lot of games. He hasn't played 140 games in a season, I think, since maybe 2018. Um, and as talented as he is and as generational as he is, and he's, you know, he's the best player of this generation by far. Uh, but, you know, the old saying, the best ability is availability, and he hasn't been available uh, as much as somebody of his uh, caliber should be. Um, and he's got a lot of money owed to him. He's, you know, approaching his mid-30s soon. Uh, and I'm not sure if they traded him, would it be a money dump where they say, okay, we're going to try to get rid of his salary and start over and, and let him go try to win somewhere? Or would they be expecting big-time prospects back? Um, I'm not sure if teams are going to give up two or three of the top 100 prospects uh and take on that money for a guy who has not shown the ability to stay on the field that much. So um, it's a tricky situation to try to unload Mike Trout as great as he is, and he's great with that contract. So, uh, yeah, he's not asking for a trade right now uh, until he does. Yeah, he will. We all know that he will. And one of the things he might ask for a trade for is to get away from Anthony Rendon who actually said, <laughs> as you well know, baseball has never been the top priority in my life. It's how I make a living. That's why I do it. It's an unimaginable quote to me. Mark, it's unimaginable. It is, except if you've ever been around Anthony Rendon and talked to him, this is who he is, and he's never tried to hide it. Uh, he knows he's really good at baseball, but it's not the passion that it is for some other guy's uh, you know, Matt Scherzer comes to mind, obviously, a guy who is as passionate about his craft and the game as anything. Um, you know, I think when Rendon was like 30, he said something, he was talking about some player who was 35 years old, marveling at, at how he keeps himself in shape, whatever. Somebody said, what do you think you're going to be doing at 35? And he said, hopefully not playing baseball. And then he went out and signed a seven-year contract at 31. So, um, you know, I wonder why people are necessarily shocked to hear him say that. Look, when, when somebody says, is baseball your priority? And he says, you know, faith and family are my priorities. I, sorry about that. I would, uh, I would assume that almost any player would put certainly family and in a lot of cases faith ahead of baseball because those are the sort of things that keep their life grounded and, and, you know, keep their, keep them focused on, on what they do. But baseball would be a very close third in a lot of those situations. I'm not sure it is for Rendon. Um, if Anthony Rendon had been going out there the last couple of three years in Anaheim and playing 150 games and hitting 35 home runs with 120 RBIs, and he said the same thing, everybody probably would have laughed it off a little bit. But the fact that he is constantly injured. He's hurt uh, all, the not, all the time. Has not come close has not come close to living up to the contract that he signed, then all of a sudden people start questioning, oh, well, what about his dedication to the game? And um, you know, But again, I, I think anybody who's been around Rendon, especially down in Washington when he was coming up, couldn't have been surprised hearing these comments. Um, Rafael Devers today, I watched this on TV this morning already. 
Uh, now, it, he just says basically and very matter-of-factly, come on now, the Red Sox have to help us out. I mean, we, everybody knows what we need. we got to go get what we need. What are we talking about here? What do you make of that? Well, I think he's one of the first guys to say it publicly, but I know that yeah. privately there have been a bunch of players in, in Fort Myers who have uh, sort of been poking around and talking to uh, reporters and talking to other people at, at the camp and saying, what, what are we doing here? You know, you know a little Brian Arakpo. And it's, uh, yeah, come I, on, I man. I don't really what know. Been doing what, out here? What, what are we even doing out here? Yeah. I, I don't know what they're doing. And it seems like John Henry has not had the desire to go spend the money uh, that that he once did. I mean, you know, they certainly have set out the majority of free agency. They've signed a few guys here and there, um, but then they trade Chris Sale, and you're saying, okay, well, who's replacing him in your rotation? And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that the Red Sox right now are in a division, in a position in their division to, to compete. I mean, you look at them and say that's probably a fourth-place team at best um, because – you know, the Orioles are certainly on the rise after their big season last year. And the Blue Jays are a team that always uh, seems to be dangerous and seems to be one of the you know, the chic picks to, to win that division. The Rays just do what the Rays do every year. And you look at their roster and say, well, they're not going to be any good. And then they go out and win 94 games. Uh, and the Yankees added Juan Soto. So, yeah. you know, you wonder how the Red Sox plan to compete. You know, there are still guys on the market. If, if they decided, oh, you know what, let's go spend some money. They could add Jordan Montgomery or Blake Snell to their rotation. Um, so I don't know if they're going to. It certainly doesn't seem like they have any interest in doing so. But if I'm Rafael Devers and I've just signed a very lengthy contract to stay yeah. with the Red Sox, you're sitting there going, you know, what? Let's, let's, it's not just me here. I can't do this by myself. Let's uh, let's go get a few other guys and, and try to win this thing because they've had a taste of it. And, you know, 20 years ago, uh, right now, you would have said, well, there's 86 years since the Red Sox have won the World Series, and uh, they really need to get this done, but they've got four titles since then, and, um, you know, it seems like they're they're just content to pump Fenway Park as a destination and try to sell the ballpark to the fans and the experience of coming to Fenway, and, uh, you know, if we win, we win. If we don't, hey, you're going to have a great time anyway. You mentioned Snell. You mentioned Montgomery. I'll add Matt Chapman. I'll add Cody Bellinger. Who's the first to be signed, and where is he going? <laughs> uh, I would have said Montgomery uh, like a week ago because I thought that once the Rangers settled their TV situation, that that was a reunion that made sense that both sides wanted um, and that it was going to happen. And then the other day, Chris Young, their general manager, said uh, he doesn't really anticipate any major uh, moves at this point, which look, it could be posturing. It could be like we talked about before. We have no major mm-hmm. moves coming until we do. Um, but I think Snell is probably the next guy, the first guy. Um, you know, he's the one who, you know, if Jordan Montgomery had to take a one year pillow deal somewhere to, you know, just have another good year and go back and test the market again next year, assuming he has the same kind of year he has, he won't necessarily be coming off of a world series championship and a great postseason, And that might, you know, take away a little of the momentum he has right now or seemingly has, but Snell's coming off of a Cy Young season. And unless you win the Cy Young again, uh, you're not going to have the same leverage That's right. uh, that you have now. So uh, to me, you know, pitchers are the ones who stand to lose more uh, the later they sign. You know, I, I, you, you probably need to get four or five outings in uh, during spring training in order to be ready to go opening day. Um, and when you sign, you got to go in for your physical. you got to start throwing a couple of bullpens and live batting practice. And it's not like you can sign and go start on Saturday. Um so I think the pitchers probably have a little more urgency to sign. Uh, I know the Yankees are still involved in Snell. I know the Angels and Giants are still potentially involved with Snell. Uh, it would not surprise me if, um, you know, maybe a week from now or maybe even by the end of the weekend, uh, we have some resolution on the Snell situation. I'll get you out of here on this. It occurs to me with what the Yankees and the Dodgers have done in the offseason um, that their managers – are on the hottest seat in baseball. Not a manager of a losing team, but a manager of two teams that are expected to compete for the World Series. Am I right or wrong on this? Uh, you're right. I think, you know, when you look, the Yankees manager, I feel like, is on the hot seat every year. And, you know, they missed the playoffs last year. They kept Aaron Boone. They like mm-hmm. Aaron Boone. Uh, he's done a really good job there since he took over 
in 2018. He's won 100 games a few times, and um, I think the players like him. Aaron Judge likes him, which is probably the most important thing for Aaron Boone because uh, Aaron Judge is, uh, you know, essentially a part owner of the team now. So yeah. I, I think there's definitely heat on them. Look, when you have a, a manager of a bad team, there's no expectations. And if you're a bad team and you're bad, everybody's going to say we were supposed to be bad. So how do you blame the manager for that? Um, you know, you sort of looked at the Orioles when they were going through their rebuild and they hired Brandon Hyde and everybody said, well, great, he'll be the guy to, you know, handle all the losing and help some of these young kids get to the big leagues or whatever. And then when they're ready to win, they'll get rid of him and they'll get a, a big manager. Well, Brandon Hyde survived and obviously had a, a great year and one manager of the year last year. Um, so I, I think there's always less pressure on the teams without the expectations. But when you're Dave Roberts and your team's gone out and signed Shohei Otani and Yamamoto and traded for Tyler Glass now, uh, there's one expectation this year, and that's you're going to win the World Series. And if they don't, they're not going to get rid of Otani and Yamamoto and Glass now, or Mookie yeah. Betts or Freddie Freeman or any of the other superstars they have there. The change you're going to make is in the manager's office. So, uh, yeah, Dave Roberts, for a guy who won the World Series just four years ago, probably has as much pressure on him uh, as anybody in the game this year to go out there and at the very least get to the World Series, if not win it. It's it's so interesting to me that in baseball, um, and, and maybe this happens in other sports as well, but at the beginning of last year, if you said that Arizona and Texas were going to be in the World Series, you could have gotten 5,000 to one on that. I mean, it's just I, that, that the really established teams, that the teams that won over 100 games, they didn't post in, in, in the playoff. They didn't at all, right? That was amazing. When you look back at baseball, that those two teams went that far. Is that not, am I overstating that? I don't think so. Not at all. And I think when you look at, like, look at the National League this year. If you could have somebody give you, okay, you can have an Atlanta, Los Angeles, NLCS, or you can have the rest of the field. You would take the Atlanta, LA, yes, NLCS. Yes, Because those two sure. teams appear to be so much better than yes. everybody else in the league. And, and there are other good teams, but those two teams stand out as being head and shoulders. And yet, I have a feeling we'll be sitting here talking in mid-October and you'll be asking me, how did, fill in the blank, Atlanta or Los Angeles, how did that team not get out of the wild card series or the division series? Because that's how it works in baseball. I was in uh, Bradenton yesterday at Pirates Camp. Now, this is a team that nobody's expecting to win more than, you know, if you have a good year there, you're looking at 75 to 80 wins. Um, you know, I think they won 76 games last year. And it was, you know, there was some momentum there. And I was talking to David Bednar, who's their all-star closer, and I said, you know, do you guys look around the league and, and think to yourself, like, why not us? He said, oh, that's the expectation here. We're, we're looking at getting the playoffs. And I was talking to somebody later, and I said, is that delusional on their part to think that? And they said exactly what you just said. If I had told you a year ago that the Arizona <laughs> yeah. Diamondbacks were yeah. going to be in the World Series, you would have said they were delusional. And yet there we were at the end of October watching the Diamondbacks in the World Series. It's why baseball's great, because – you can have these super teams. You can have the Dodgers go out and sign Otani Yamamoto. It doesn't guarantee them anything. I covered the Yankees for 16 years. They would sign Jason Giambi and Gary Sheffield and Deki Matsui and Randy Johnson and Mike Mussi and all these guys. And for the first nine years that I was on the beat, they didn't win the World Series, no matter how much money they spent. So, uh, you know, Joe Torre always talked about the playoffs are a crapshoot. And every year they're a crapshoot. And we go, how did this happen? And the answer is always because it's baseball. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. We'll talk from camp before the season starts. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Mark Feinstein, boys and girls. We'll take a break. I think email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Got emails, faxes, and Eric DeLong and my favorite name group, the Slappy Boys. The Slappy Boys. Want to do the Bethesda Bagel after? Yes, and every time I hear the banjo, I smile. I love the banjo. I think of Steve Martin. Yeah. He plays it brilliantly. Yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, Bethesda Bagels. We love them, you will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop it in, my friend, and you will be thrilled. That'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, Dear Sir and Madam, will you read my book? It took me years to write. Will you take a look? It's based on a novel by a man named Lear, and I need a job and I want to be a paperback writer. Those are the Beatles. I love that song. I love the it's lyrics of that song. song. A thousand pages, give or take a few. I'll be writing more in a week or two. 
If you must return it, you can send it here. Oh, God, I love that song. Thanks to our guests, Ryan McGee, Mark Feinsand. Thanks to our sponsors today. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple, please leave us a review. From Brett Hobbs in Linton, Indiana. The reason I listen to your podcast is every so often you combine something in my past with a story from today. You describe the crash event in the NASCAR race with the phrase, the wheel spun around like the exorcist. <laughs> Only a wordsmith master could create a mashup of a 70s horror film with the horrors of racing. I'm sure one day you will use pea soup projectile in another sports-related way. I don't know how many others caught that reference, but sure it made me laugh out loud. By the way, I saw that film once and I will never see it again. No, no one will, mm -mm. as I still have many scenes from that film etched in my brain. Everyone does. Yeah. <clears throat> Can't go back Watch on that Watch that once. That's it. Kyle Steele, St. Catharines, Ontario. As an undergraduate in a Canadian university town, also home of your Niagara Ice Dogs, I was an audience to an early story of Wayne Gretzky before he started his transcendent climb across the hockey leagues of Ontario and Canada. As a young player in his local team in Brantford, Wayne was a prolific goal scorer and competitor. One of his coaches saw his team building a large lead before the end of the second period, much to Wayne's credit. To begin the third period, Wayne was told he would be resting as his other teammates took the ice to finish the game. His team's goal lead slowly diminished until near the end of the game. With less than a minute remaining, the team was now down on the scoreboard by one goal. With some regret in his voice, the coach turned to Wayne and asked him if he would like to get back on the ice at the end of the game. A young Wayne, not yet 10 years old, so he's nine, he's nine, looked up at the coach and said the following, do you want to win or do you want to tie? <laughs> Wayne, even as a young boy, was always destined to be the great one. That's, even if that's not true, it's, a great it's story. great. It's great. Rob Woodcock in Manassas, Virginia. I have to admit, I was taken way aback by the gentleman who postulated that Orr changed the game in a way that Gretzky did not. I would rebut with a two-line pass. The NHL invented a rule to try to curtail his assists by making the two-line pass illegal, even if only in part. I'm sure there were other factors, but he helped. And what happened? It did not work. <laughs> if the two-line pass were not a rule, experts speculate that his total would be through the roof. So there's that. Incidentally, if available, could I be the official tables game casino employee of the Tony Kornheiser show? I could even give info from the other side of the pit on gambling questions. What if you let if you let Jeff Ma come gamble at your yeah, place? Yes, let sure. Jeff mine. See what happens. <laughs> From John Mossman, as you were incredulously running your yap at the absurd number of assists <laughs> Wayne Gretzky dished out in his career, you boldly proclaimed, "This doesn't happen in other sports." It occurred to me that John Stockton sits almost four thousand assists ahead of Jason Kidd on the NBA's list of all-time assist leaders. I'm no statistician, but that seems like a lot. It pleases me no end when I say something and people look at the absurdity of it and give me chapter and verse as to why I'm an idiot. Now, the, I will just say this. Assists were not kept accurately for many, many years. Yes. They probably didn't really start until the 80s. And now you can get an assist for almost anything, but still 4,000 over the second place guy. That's a big number. That's going to take a while. Uh, this is from, this is long. This is... Okay, from Brian in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Earlier this week, you mentioned how Wayne Gretzky is over 700 career assists ahead of Ron Francis. While this is remarkable, lest we forget, Nolan Ryan is 839 strikeouts ahead of Randy Johnson in all-time strikeouts and 2,347 strikeouts ahead of Warrior guard Max Scherzer, who has the most strikeouts of any active player. Scherzer only needs about eight more 300-season strikeouts <laughs> to catch up. Ricky Henderson has 1,406 stolen bases, 468 ahead of Lou Brock. 468 is more than any active player has total. So you can, if you could see me on News Channel 8, you'd see how sheepishly I'm reading these things and how stupid I know I am. Uh, from Ben in Port Wainimi, Albanese are always are what I always wished Haribo could be, a confectionery revelation. I would never have tried them if not for your stinking show. Just watch your teeth. Matt in Jerusalem. I know I'm a little bit late to the Grammys discussion because I'm a few days behind listening to the pod. But are we just not going to discuss the time that Aretha Franklin filled in for a sick Luciano Pavarotti? Without any rehearsal, she stepped in to sing Italian opera in Italian and nailed it. Who cares about Babs and Neil Diamond making goo-goo eyes at, at each other across the stage? It could be Streisand and Neil Armstrong, and it wouldn't be as impressive as Aretha being the fifth tenor for a night. I guess, I, I that's, guess that's pretty right. impressive, yes. From Jim Jacobson in Austin, Texas. 
I've been listening for years, and I have many things in common with the show banter. As a military brat, I spent time in the DMV. I went to Bishop McNamara High School playing basketball and against Wilson's, uh, Wilbon's beloved Gonzaga. Later in my life, my family and I spent the years 1999 through 2006 in Binghamton, living on Riverside Drive, same as you. In fact, if you lived there as a student, I would wager you lived at 84 Riverside, a large old home that was converted to student apartments sometime in the 50s. We actually lived at 86 Riverside Drive, right next door to that party house dump. Additionally, the woman to whom I'm related by marriage earned a master's degree in English at the Kornheiser School of English at the Binghamton University. I think we were at 90 Riverside, by the way. I know we were at 90 Floral. We're Floral Avenue, but it's right close. However, the Triple Cities banter that compelled me to write this email was the recent discussion of Poncho's Pit. Michael loves Poncho's Pit. <laughs> we fed our kids with takeout from there at least once a week. We did not try the Speedies there, but opted for the $8 bucket of spaghetti with four large meatballs. <laughs> to this day, we probably have 10 of the plastic buckets from the pit in use in our kitchen for leftover storage. All in all, it was a great place to live and very kid-friendly. Sadly, we decided to seek career opportunities elsewhere on May 9th, 2005, after it snowed four inches. That was enough. <laughs> four inches? Really? Thanks for the laugh and specific memories of our beloved... Broome County. Um, one more, Bill Isaacson. Football is over, no baseball, no golf majors, and you don't want to discuss the NBA. So every show is a Thursday show for a while. Now it is time for what many of us have been waiting for. You have Netflix, you have Peacock. How does that work for you? Or perhaps a better question is, how do you possibly deal with them? Are Netflix and Peacock apps on your TV screen? How do you get to that screen? Do you have other apps like Amazon? What do you do with remote to watch them? And how many TVs do you have where they work? Do you have to sit down to watch or can you stand at the sink? My God, the material available on this can get to us opening, get us to opening day. And I haven't even mentioned, what are you going to watch after The Diplomat during the exciting conclusion to the NBA regular season? Bill Isaacs. So, yeah, I mean, I got those things. I still don't use them. I mean, I only, I sort of only watch sports. Yeah. That's, I don't even watch movies. I don't do, I'm really dull. Did you watch the holdovers? Did you ever get? Into I haven't gotten to it yet, and by that I mean I'm never going to watch it. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm really not. So we discussed though what what could we do? I was even said today, let's get Tyler Twelman on to talk about soccer. Even though I don't know anything about soccer, I felt this is that time of the year when the NBA. I, I, I'm not devoting myself to it, and I'm I'm inadequate on hockey. I'm really inadequate. Yeah. But would it be interesting to anybody? This is like a brainstorm session, and we'll put Sean and Michael on this too. I mean, if we talked about Messi and the fact that he didn't play in Hong Kong and the fact that people gave back money and all of that and, and the star quality and what is the obligation, do you think that would be interesting to anybody, Michael? Uh, yes, almost as interesting as if you know how to open up the apps on your TV. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, can you actually no. get, can you get to Netflix or do you just have to use the, the voice button? I just say Netflix, and then maybe it comes up, and maybe Which means it you ask for mom. I do, yeah, I do. I don't really know what I'm doing, but is would would we think soccer? What do you think? I do think that's an interesting discussion about I mean, Messi because that was sort of a big deal. He's and, a star. Yeah, he's he's what, the biggest star the, in soccer. Yeah, which means he's one of the biggest stars on the planet. I know? was watching Sports Center this morning. They had two different soccer guests. They had two different soccer guests. They're clawing their way out of the toilet while the NBA is on hiatus. There's nothing. The NBA Zero. Get, yeah, the NBA gets back in action, what, two weeks from now? Um, a month from now. Who knows? <laughs> if you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Yeah, here's the thing. We're not the wonders right now. We're Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> For the both of us I can hear your friends talking I've had enough Sick of seeing your face everywhere I turn Second chance on a second hand kind of love This is it, yeah, I think I finally learned It's time to rev it up, rev it up Let these tires burn I'm going to Arizona Timbuktu, 